0: So, by five o'clock I was in bed, and he insisted I not go to church on Sunday. He said, you stay in bed and sleep. So, I thought, well, okay, fine. (laughs) I wasn't terribly, but it was okay, because I got up in the, when I did get up later that morning, I got up, I went for my walk, I listened to my teaching tapes, so I got my sermon all of my own on our subject, and that was really nice, and I got my walk in, and which also consequently meant last night I was done a little bit earlier than I normally would be. So I was in bed by two last night. So that's good. That's for me is awesome. So I was very happy. So I feel rested and ready to go. I know, it's craziness. It's, but once we get through chapter six, then it's going to be a, a nice little routine again for a little while. So I just got to get through this part here. Okay, I'm excited about it, however. So let's get started. Let's start by going back. Now, What I am going to do with us this morning is some technicalities of inductive processes. I want us to, as I said, use all the tools in our toolbox. I want us to pull out some of these steps that you can take in order to come to a sound interpretation. Because, you know, it's easy for me to read through this this section here, which is a difficult passage, and it's notoriously argued about. And so, in fact, I've listened to so many sermons on this, and they've talked about, like, some of the pastors say, I have listened to 16 various interpretations of this passage, and and I'm going to boil it down to you to four points, what they are basically saying. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is too much confusion. Um, But I think that if we will... Um, at least make the attempt to take apart the pieces of it and lay them out, that helps us to begin to build a platform of some absolutes that are going to be clarified for us, that are going to be no longer an issue as far as conflict for trying to come to some kind of interpretation. Sometimes coming to sound interpretation is not necessarily finding the magic keyword study or the magic um, cross-reference, right? But sometimes it's a matter of eliminating what it cannot be so that you can then focus to say, then what does it mean? And I think for me, that's how I saw this particular passage best addressed. First, eliminate what it cannot possibly be and then, then try to say, okay, so if it doesn't mean that, Don't even go there. Stop struggling with that. What is it saying? So that's how we're going to handle it, I think. Okay. so we're going to start by looking first and foremost at the components that lead up to this and after. We know that context rules for interpretation, that's a rule, correct? So let's put that up here, a reminder. Context rules for interpretation. Okay, that's the first number, number one rule. The second rule is you never violate your known doctrines, right? Okay, sometimes those uh, doctrines are even actually pretty clearly addressed within the text that you're in. Uh, and in this case, Hebrews does that for us. It actually will um, uh, has been systematically, progressively building doctrines for us, has it not? One of the issues about this audience is that they're Jewish, correct? Yeah. And so what has this author been addressing big picture? What is the major theme for this, this book theme about? Jesus is better, Jesus is better Okay. Now, why is that significant for this audience? Because what seems to be maybe the problem going on for them? They seem to be turning back. That's exactly right. And in doing that, then, this author needs to address quite a few things. Number one, um, he starts out in Hebrews 1 and 2, I think with probably one of the most significant parts of the setup for this book on the whole, and that is what was said previously through the prophets, but now what is better is now said through the sun, okay? And we see that actually peek its little head out almost repeatedly as you move through each chapter. So in chapter 1, the first one is he is better, but who is, and who is he better than? Better than angels. Now, why is he better than angels? He is God. Okay. He is God. That's why he's better than angels, because he is God. Okay. And the angels, they are simply ministering servants, right? But Jesus is God the Son, right? And he's also God the Son, so you could add that up there as well. All right. Chapter 2, then, he's also better. And what is the better than Uh, subject, major subject matter that's going on in chapter two. It's about man and that that Jesus became man. He took on flesh, but does that make him equal, equal with us as men? No. No, he is actually better. Now, what are the qualities or the, or the points that are brought up in chapter two about him being better than man? He's a Okay, to, because he came to actually help man, and in doing so, he became the, the, the high priest and the what else? Amen. Savior. That's to me, is, it, is probably the most important one in there. Okay, so he, he was made man, but is better, right? Because he's our Savior. He sank, it, it talks about him sanctifying man. There are those who are sanctified, and the one who sanctifies come from one father. And yet what the the, the conclusion and what you read in there, though, is although, although man is sanctified by, or we have the same father, Jesus has the same father in that we became flesh, but one is sanctified, the other one does the sanctifying, and that makes him better, right? Okay, so I'm going to put on here just savior as the primary subject, even though there's a lot more to it than that. He is the author of man's salvation in verse 10. He partook of flesh to give aid to man in verse 14. Okay, chapter 3 then, how is he better? He's better than Moses. Now, what about Moses? What is the major subject going on in chapter 3? How about look in verse 1? starts out talking about what subject? A heavenly calling. And in regards to Moses, when he says he's better than Moses, how is the heavenly calling of Jesus uh, shown to be better than that of the calling that Moses gave when he was here? First of all, he's a servant and Jesus is a son, but what about the message of the calling? Jesus' is as a heavenly calling, but what was Moses's? Verse 5, look in verse 5 of chapter 3. There you go. He gave the testimony of those things which were going to occur later. So, in other words, he, he spoke prophetically of the Christ who was going to come. His message was of something that was coming. But when Jesus came, what was it? I'm here. It's the calling of God. Come into me. I will give you uh, living uh, waters. I am the, the bread of life. I am the light of man. I am, I am, I am, right? So that in that regard, he was better than Moses. So you can put on here his calling is better than Moses. Than Moses is calling if you want to bring it out. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. Moses' calling was a testimony of what was to be spoken later. But Jesus is the apostle of God's heavenly calling. And what is the repeated uh, exhortation concerning that calling? What does he keep telling us over and over in that chapter? Obey it and hear it. Hear his calling and obey it. Very good. Excellent. All right. So Let's just put on here, hear his voice, okay, that would be Jesus' voice, okay, chapter four then now this is all of this is being said, father, you, to you guys to kind of build the foundation of how this author is setting these people up so that when we get into chapter 5 and 6, we can see what is going on here, that he has to make this pause, okay? Now, in chapter 4, what do we see? He's better than. What is the major subject in chapter 4? The rest of God, right? So, how is Jesus better, or a better rest, What kind of rest were, were the Jews holding on to for them religiously? Sabbath. A Sabbath rest and the land of rest. So those two subjects come up in chapter 4, and what this uh, flow of thought here with this author is that there is actually a better rest than that. You guys had the land of rest, you guys had the Sabbath rest, but there remains, therefore, for you a better rest, and that is Jesus. And that, after all, was the actual rest of God to begin with. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, David would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, the land rest, it was just a picture, right? That was given to them for teaching. The Sabbath was also an elementary teaching. It was a picture, God did the work from the foundation of the world, he says in 4.3. So the real rest that God wanted them to enter into was something that was done from the foundation of the world. So it wasn't the land rest and it wasn't the Sabbath rest. Those were pictures. It was Jesus who was planned from before the foundation of the world. Isn't that awesome to know that that was the real rest that God wanted them to have? So Jesus is a better rest. You only had the picture previously. Now you have the true rest, the promised rest of God, and that's Jesus. It's provided how? How is rest, the true rest of God provided for them? By, through salvation, and it's a gift, right? It's, a, in other words, by grace. That's another significant point in here because if you don't understand that the rest of God, which is salvation, is by grace, when you hit chapter 6, is going to be a problem, okay? So you have to say here, it's a better rest, it's by grace, and it's provided by God. So that's why in those two pictures, like the Sabbath rest, why did they celebrate the Sabbath? What was the point? Because God did all the work and rested on the seventh day. They were to recognize that God did it all, and therefore they were to rest. So that picture was given to them early on in in their history to teach them that God did it. The work is done by God, and I'm to recognize that and rest on the Sabbath. That's the point of that. What about, in the, especially in our flow of thought here between three and four, what are we learning about the land of rest? What pictures were given to us in that? What truths were taught? If they would be obedient. So in that particular picture, how do you enter into rest? Obedience, by faith and obedience. Now, is it the action of obedience that gets you into that rest no it's faith that then is demonstrated so in other words your your actions are simply at the evidential points that's what shows that you actually had faith real faith is lived out real faith is seen in you you can make lip service all day you can claim you're a christian today but if you are not living it then there's always in the back of my mind a question mark Are they really saved? Because if you're truly saved, what will you do? There will be evidence in your behavior. Now, that's not to say the behavior saves you, okay? That's right. So chapter 5 is Jesus is a better rest. Oh, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 5, Jesus is, oh, okay, so now let's go to 5, okay, you're right, I already put it up there, sorry. Okay, Jesus is a better rest in chapter 4, it's by grace that was provided by God, okay, and it's, and by the, by way, let's just put it up there, provided by God, which was what? Jesus himself, so Jesus is the rest of God. Not the land and not the Sabbath day, but Jesus. Jesus is the Sabbath rest that God wanted us to have. He is the land rest He wanted us to have. Okay. Chapter five now. Another better than Jesus is better than what? What com- what subject now comes up in five? The high priesthood comes up, right? And he's concerning the high priesthood. What seems to be the major emphasis of importance in that subject? That, that it is a designation, it's a calling, it's an appointment. And that if it's not appointed, if it's not called, if you're not called, and if it's not designated for you to be the high priest, then what? If you take or assume those roles as high priest, what did we learn last week? God, you could die. The earth could open and swallow you alive into Sheol, right? That's what we learned by our research. We saw then that when God chose the, the line of Aaron... He chose him out of, out of which family line? The Levites. Now, this is interesting because when Jesus is called our great high priest to a Jewish-thinking man or woman at that time, how would that be possibly a problem? Or actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even say possibly. How really was that a big problem? He was not a Levite. What, of what house and bloodline did he come from? Judah, the line of David, right, which made him the king, which is certainly what they were wanting and looking forward to, but when it came to this particular author's preaching then, his teaching to them, that Jesus, not only is he the king, and he's the one who sits on the throne, we saw that in chapter 1, but now he's saying, but he's also your high priest, right? According to the order of Melchizedek, now, what happens once he makes this statement? what is he what starts happening then at the end of chapter five? He starts with a rebuke. He say, "Now, wait a minute, you know what I have a lot to say about this 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 uh, understanding about Jesus being designated your high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but what does he say about these people concerning what he wants to tell them?" You guys are dull of hearing. And, and because you're dull of hearing, then he starts to identify them as being what? So he, lots of contrast. You're an infant, not what? What's the contrast? Not mature. So something has happened with these people that they came into faith, but they remained infants. Boy, oh boy, we could talk about that one for a while. How many do you know in your life who are claiming to be believers today? Because we want to make this relevant to today as well. This does not just apply to the Jewish situation of this particular text, but this has an application for our lives today as well. When a person comes into faith, they make all the right verbal claims concerning who Christ is. But then they cease to do anything beyond that. They, they, don't, they never grow. They just kind of stay down here in the baby qualities, right? So this author makes contrast. You're, you're an infant, but does he give a time factor as far as, has he been gracious enough to give them time? What does he say about that? By, By now you ought to be teachers. But instead you have need for what? milk. We're back to sticking a bottle in the mouth of a full-grown person who should be mature enough in their faith and mature enough in their knowledge of the word of God that they should be able to handle what he's going to tell them about the order of Melchizedek. Um, conversations all the time. When you, when you enter into a conversation with, some, with someone, have you guys found experiences where you've started to talk to them about something and you can see that the lights are on and nobody's home? and you're like okay so how do i ex- how do i even go into this conversation with a person when i just see these these stares into the like the deer staring into the headlights of a car and they're kind of looking at you like oh boy you've lost me because they don't know enough about their own faith to connect dots so they can't follow your conversation with you that's what this author has done he's hit a subject that is a difficult one to handle Particularly if you're of a mindset of the Jew who understands the Levitical system and that it's only through the bloodline of Aaron that the that, that he, high priest is designated. And he, they understand their history about if uh, someone should assume to step into that role. We saw uh, uh, one of the kings, who was it, King um, Uzziah, who decided he would usurp that role and take on that. And what did God do to Uzziah? He had leprosy for the rest of his life. Now, this is interesting because he's, he taught us, he showed us already, in a pre, or she, Kay had us look at a previous passage where those who came up against Aaron and Moses, uh, defying them concerning this, this order that had been established, which is the priesthood, they were not happy with the fact that they could not qualify. Who do you think you are, Moses? Do you think you're better than us? Well, who was the one that had designated? God. So the real defiance was against God and his authority, right? Concerning God's design role in all this. And so we'd already seen that people could die. But with Uzziah now, what have we seen? Leprosy that could hang on your whole life. Does this make you think of a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about those who go to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And what does he say about some people who do that? Some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. Now, the falling asleep is what? Death, physical death, right? It doesn't mean loss of salvation, does it? No, of course not. Would any of us ever jump to that conclusion? No, because you're no, because you're reading this passage and you're saying he's talking to believers are coming to the Lord's Supper. They're mad at their brother or their sister in Christ and not treating them in a in a worthy manner. They're eating and leaving some out, basically. It's unkindness, right? And in and in covenant, understanding of covenant is an understanding that you have a, a responsibility toward one another right and so if you go to the Lord's Supper and you don't don't consider your brother or sister you're getting you're getting full and drunk basically while they're starving and without and you're not considering that they should have a portion of this and be brought in and also if there are if there are um, disagreements between you and them that have, are unresolved this is also unkindness it's un um, covenant-like, and so he's saying some of you, because of this, because of this attitude, because of this sin and its persistence, and not only that, but you have the gall to come before God at the Lord's Supper and not have resolved these problems, and you think you're entitled to come before the Lord as his child, to participate in that and yet, and yet not be actively responsible in your relationship with those others who are brothers and sisters in Christ? He's saying there is discipline that can happen, not rejection from God, but discipline from God. And he says, therefore, some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. So with Uzziah, we saw he got sick. God God brought, yes, a bad one, leprosy, which, by the way, what did that leprosy do for him? It made him unclean, and what could he never again do? Go into that very temple that he was desecrating by his actions. He absolutely so I mean if you just that one storyline if you blend all that together you begin to already see glimpses of what's going on here in this particular chapter we see that he is saying to them he says look you have you are in a relationship with God and if, if if I come to you then and I began to um see in you things that are un-Christ-like, un-Christian-like, un-covenant, new covenant-like, and you hold on to those, would you not expect the Lord to discipline? There you go, Hebrews chapter 12, which we're going to get to in part three, <laughs> Unfortunately. But it's a long way up. But see, that's my point. You just proved my point. You cannot take chapter 6 without the totality of the whole book of Hebrews. You isolate this one chapter apart from what's going to come up later, and you're going to miss it. The other thing is is you have to look at the whole flow of thought here. So we're already seeing in this book over and over, he's already showing to them how Jesus is better because what are they doing? They're holding on to the old. They are... are, um, endeared to the old system of worship. And for obvious reasons, they grew up in it. And, and their whole nation around them is continuing in that. So I can certainly have some compassion for the struggle that they would have had. absolutely. And I can tell you, I saw this firsthand for myself um, when I lived in Turkey, where there were Turkish believers who came into faith and their family literally would beat them up, throw every piece of their belongings their clothing or whatever out the front door. And they were on the streets and their family and their, and their community that they had been affiliated where they got all their support would, would totally turn their backs on them. So in, in Judaism someone who would not participate in the Jewish system would very quickly become, quote, unclean, and therefore what? Ostracized. Ostracized. Even if emotionally the family wasn't angry with them for turning their back on the faith system that they had always embraced, um, there was the simple facts about the idea of cleanliness that because in Christ we receive our cleanliness where and how? Through his blood, through faith. It's not an external thing, it's an internal thing, right? But they, the Jews of, of their family and, their, and of their community that they're still living amongst, are, are still living in the external duties, which is exactly why this author is having to go through systematically and say, look, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that is, mind, it is a big deal, and I think that this this flow of thought—if—if if you get into the let the context of the book, and everything that he's already established—lead you into where we are here in as we approach chapter six, because even at the close of five, he already begins to show them where their real struggle is lying is in them walking a fence. Have you ever heard of fence-walking Christians? They have one leg in the world and one leg. Now, see, our struggle is slightly different, and there are books of the, of, of, in the New Testament also that address this, such as Corinthians, where it shows a, quote, believing New Testament believer, but they're still walking in the, the world of the Gentiles, which is primarily about external sin, but with the, with the Jews, it's not external sin, it's, it's legalistic system of worship. And so that was their struggle. So they are, they are struggling against this old legalistic system, which, on the other hand, they got the other leg in the, into the world of Christianity where they've made a claim, they've made a confession that Jesus is the Christ, he is the, the rest of God, Right, He is the better calling than that of Moses in the, in the Jewish system, but in the Christian system, it's Jesus, the Son, who is better. And that's a better heavenly calling. And it's something we are to now, according to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, to do what concerning it? Press in. Press on, move on, mature, right? Move out of the old and move fully into the new. Stop walking the fence. That's what he's trying to tell them to do. So in chapter 5, our major thing is he is a better designated high priest, but now he gets to this subject with them about the designated high priesthood and how Jesus qualifies for it, and he sees them looking at him like a deer does into the headlights of a car. And they, they, they are clueless. And they are clueless because why? Because they, didn't understand the fundamentals. they didn't obviously fully understand the fundamentals. They're back into those. And when they talk about these elementary teachings, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what obviously what that doesn't mean is is, a, is any kind of a real understanding about Jesus because he's having to teach them about Jesus, how he's better than that old system. Okay, so he is a better designated high priest. Better than who? Better than better than a, the Aaron system because, he, but he is not chosen in the, in this, the way of the old system either. Actually, he's chosen in the exact same way, but yet precursors it the Aaronic priesthood, right? Because the Aaronic priesthood was designated by God. He laid down the system and the order of it. He's the one who picked Aaron out to be his high priest. He is the one who says, this is my man for this job, right? Um, but now he's, this author is going to introduce to them the fact that there was a calling for the son the Christ who was to come to be a designated high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then all of a sudden he stops and says, oh boy, I think I just stepped into a subject. You guys are not going to be able to follow me on because you've not yet ag- agreed with all of this. How, do say, how does he know they haven't really agreed? Although they, they're giving the lip service, how does he know they have not really agreed with all of this yet? Because they're still living in the old, they got one leg in one side of the fence and one leg on the other. They're not—they're—they're they're making verbal claims to it. They've made a confession. They have—they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. They are um, um, those who are embracing that Jesus is the one who came, but yet they're not fully living it. So he is seeing them having this torn heart. All right, so that kind of sets us up. So um, he says, however, he makes a pause. Let's put on this. Pause, because you are dull of hearing. So he has to make a pause, starting in chapter 5, and it starts in verse, um, hold on, it's right at the end, stops in 11 to 14. 11, and then he goes all the way to 6, really chapter 8, or verse 8 rather, 6-8, where then he will, he will, after that in verse 9, pick back up on the teaching qualities again. But he's going to make a pause here in the middle because he's going to address the fact that he can see that they are dull of hearing, that by this time they should have already actually learned all this thoroughly fully embraced it and being living in it. And how does he know if they've embraced it? Because they should be living in it, but they're not, okay? Boy, do we know Christians like that who make a claim that they are Christian. They even show up to church. They can speak some churchology words out of their mouth on occasion. They know when it's appropriate to say amen and when to stand up when the singing starts and uh, they, you know, they come on the cor- the correct occasions to be there, but yet in their daily living, on their li- in their lifestyle, their choices and their behavior does not indicate that they really are being guided by the Holy Spirit. So this is where we can see a real relationship to understanding of a lot of this. So now, okay, so with that set as your context for lead-in, that there's a struggle, right, walking the fence struggle. Now let's start with chapter 6, and let's just break apart some of the pieces in it. Tell me what did you see for key words in chapter 6? This was your primary work this week, was to do your observations. So tell me what the key words are in chapter 6. Okay, the elementary teachings. And this is, I think, an important part of it. It says it's elementary teachings, but then there's, there's a qualifier for it that follows it. Um, no, go back and look at the phrasing of it again. The, it's elementary teachings about what? About the Christ. Did you catch that? Elementary teachings about the Christ. Okay, so that's one of the subjects that comes up. Maturity, Maturity. and it's contrasted with something that they have done, right, or that they are potentially are going to do. What is it? He wants them to press into maturity and not to do what? Not to fall away. So two points come up in contrast here. The subject of maturity versus falling away. Okay. You, it says, press on to maturity, and then it speaks of those who have fallen away. What else do we have for keywords? Repentance, that's a good one. And Kay had us do a word study on that. What did you discover about that word repentance? A change of mind. So it's interesting. he speaks about them uh, um, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, what are the works that are being spoken of? We did a lot of homework on that. What, are the, what did you come to see about the works? Okay, maybe works that we would do to try to save ourselves by, okay? And what would that be in contrast to then? Faith and what other work? There's another work that is actually directly contrasted to. Go back to chapter 4 about the rest of God. Why are we able to rest? Because who did the work? God did the work. So what is the work of God? Christ himself, what Christ did, and the plan that was laid from before the foundation of the world. So there's a contrast here between your works and also speaking about elementary works that are contrasted then with the true works. So again, actually, what we can begin to see here is there's again this struggle of something that's better than. There's something that's better than your works. There's whose work? God's work that he did. That's by grace. And so there's your, there is a contrast there that is really presented when you speak about the elementary teachings. It's actually a contrast statement here. All right, what else? Promises. I love that. Now, the promises is in connection to uh, which primary character? Whose promises are they? But who gave it to Abraham God. God did so it's god's promises to abraham and god's promises but he said before that he says we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will
1: not be slaugish the imitators of those
0: who through faith and patience inherit the promises inherit the promises and who are the promises affiliated to what major character God, God, yeah, God who gave them to Abraham, right, you, you're, and you're right, you can, you can see Abraham as a subject who comes up here, but, but when you see, the, when you put a key word on there of promises, it's qualified by whose promises, because that's who the hope is in, and that's where the assurance comes, if it was Abraham giving me a promise, I could question it, because Abraham's simply a man, but this is talking about the promises of God, so God's promises, that's your major that's your major subject there okay god's promises and well and oath and that, that goes on then to we'll look at that in a second and that's where we're going to kind of preempt your work a little bit next week because you we can't help it because it's like in order to understand What's sandwiched in between here in 5.11 to 6.8, you almost have to go on to 6.9 to the to verse 20 and see the fullness of what's taught there to continue to uh, uh, anchor you in what is true about God and his promises and therefore the assurance that you have concerning those promises, which brings up the subject then of assurance of salvation, right? Which which for many people who look in those uh, verses, uh, in chapter 6, verses 3 to 8, they look at those and, and say that this is teaching that you can lose salvation. And yet to me, when you go when you move on forward in the rest of the chapter, he picks up starting in verse 9 all the way to the end in 20, and he gives you what? Assurance. I actually wrote it on my page because I thought, oh my gosh, this is like, interesting how this is sandwiched in between. Um, one of the, uh, it was John Piper I was listening to, he was one, one of the other people I listened to this week, and he was saying, remember, you cannot take a passage like this, which is obscure and difficult to understand, and pluck it out. You have to look what came before and what follows. What came before and what follows for you guys. I'm looking at it backwards, <laughs> right? So what came before is all of this. What follows is, is starts in, chap, in, in chapter uh, 6, verse uh, 8 and 9, right in there, in 9, I guess it is. And it goes all the way, or it is in 8, Five. I'm in the wrong chapter hold on oh it's in my hand <laughs> I couldn't find my sheet okay <laughs> it's in verse nine so it's in chapter six verse nine all the way to verse 20 of chapter six then is what's on the other side of that piece of meat you got a little piece of meat in between that's obscure and what's on each side of it is the bread of life that was my own little God-inspired moment there do you like that oh my gosh thank you lord Bread of life on each side, and in the middle is an obscure passage that we have to try to unravel. Okay, so I love that. I'm going to, have to write that down. <laughs> okay, words. Elementary teachings about the Christ. Maturity, fallen, repentance, works, God's promises and his oath are, are all key words that show up. What else? Do you, is there any others? There you go. Now, and all of those which, let's see, where's my, where's my, marker. I laid it down somewhere. It's buried. Here it is. It got underneath everything. Sorry. Okay. Okay, so this one, this particular word where you said hope, okay, and then you also said what? Assurance. Now, when you see see the word hope, it is also qualified by all kinds of adjectives that describe the kind of hope that it is, correct? One of those words is the word assurance, that it's a hope with assurance. What else? How else is it described? Give me some of the other synonyms that you see in that text. I have like seven. Pardon? Anchor. Okay, there's one. Anchor. Because an anchor tells you that something is solid, right? Make sure that it can't be moved around. What else? Unchangeable. Unchangeable. very good. All right. I don't know about you guys, but I marked them all in pink. Look at how many pink spots I've got on my page. There are that many synonyms to this word assurance in this particular passage. Full assurance in verse 11, right? In verse 14, God says about concerning this hope that he's going to bless them with. What does he say that he will do? Surely I will bless you. Surely I will, right, multiply you. So the word sure or surely. Steadfast. Steadfast. Okay. It enters within the veil, so there it goes to explain a, a visually what God does to show us that we have this assurance that it's forever, it's steadfast, it's sure, it's an anchor. He says in verse eighteen about it um, two things that it's unchangeable, and uh, one of you in the back, I don't know who, but somebody said it was the the unchangeableness, right? but in in that because it's an unchangeable he says about it uh, concerning god what impossible for god to lie about it i love that impossible to lie about it god will not lie about that he has not and he will not and then he goes on to explain how that's uh um explained um Let me look here. How about strong encouragement? Would you say that's also gives you, in other words, that same idea? Uh, And when the oath is given, is given to do what for you in verse 16? An oath is given as what? Confirmation. Would you say something that's confirmed is also that steadfastness, that anchor, that assurance? Okay, confirmation, that it's confirmed. Okay, now you tell me, what subject do you see uh, concerning our hope there? It's a sure thing. It's It's an assurance of your salvation. Now, if you were to move from the verse, so just reasoning this through, the verses previous to this, speaking about those... um, In verses uh, 4 to 8, would an interpretation that you can lose your salvation precede an assurance of salvation that is taught in the the verses that follow it? Would that make sense? No, it would not. It would be like, wait a minute, he's saying two different things here. Now, which one is it? Correct? If you assume, or if you come to to make a statement in your mind that verses four to eight is saying that a Christian can lose their salvation, does that violate any of our known doctrines? Absolutely, we have clearly taught doctrines. If you had to give someone um, some kind of knowledge concerning uh, assurance of salvation, what would be a subject that they might need to know about? Covenant, how about covenant? You cannot violate those, so we have assurance of salvation, and the way we know that first and foremost is covenant, a knowledge of the subject of covenant. Now, for you and I today, if you want to explain Hebrews chapter 6, to someone and explain that this is not talking about losing salvation, and you, would, and you would say to them, because you know about covenant, right, that your New Testament salvation in Jesus Christ, that's a covenant, do you think that maybe you might get the same response that this author <laughs> did with these when he came up to the subject of Jesus being according to the order of Melchizedek? Because when you start talking about the subject of covenant, how many New Testament Christians really know about covenant, the subject of covenant, and understand that in it is assurance of salvation? By your knowledge of covenant, it's an absolute. You cannot lose. If God isn't, if you have, in fact, entered into that, that, tr- that covenant, and it's true, you cannot lose it because God seals it, right? Okay. Okay. It was never eternal. Very good. So we start with the subject of covenant. Now let's just go through. I want to give you a list of some verses that you can look up on your own. Um, maybe we should look a couple of these up. Um, somebody, look up John five twenty four. That's a really good one. Um, what about First Peter three? 1 Peter 1, rather, 3 to 5, who would like that one? 1 Peter 1. Okay, Susan has that one. Who's going to do John five twenty four? Okay, Daryl's got that one. Um, what about John 10, 27 to 30? Diane, thank you. Let's, let's just do those three together. I'm going to give you some other ones because there's lots of them. The one that uh, Craig is making a foundational, it's a super... Well known for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but has everlasting life or eternal life. It is forever. So he's really starting, I think, a really, really good one because of the fact that it's so well known. And nobody, you know, nobody's going to have that deer in the headlights look in their face none of them are going to you're not going to have to pause because they're dull of hearing about that verse they're familiar with it so if you can convince them when God says it's everlasting life that that is in fact what it is then you would have at least a good start right so let's go on and look at some of these others tell me uh, somebody read that John ten twenty seven to 30 that was Susan right oh you do I'm sorry who has John okay Diane sorry Snatch them
1: out of my hand. My
2: father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand.
0: I and the Father are one. Okay, so I have given them eternal life, and they shall never what? Never perish. Never. Once I give them eternal life, they shall never perish. And not only that, but my no one can snatch them out of my hand. And no one can snatch them out of who else's hand? The Father's hand. And it talks about I and the Father are one and you cannot snatch them out of our hand. All right. So that's in John ten twenty seven. That one to me seems to give a very clear indication of assurance that if in fact you are in faith, you are assured of that salvation. But you can walk out. I know, which is stupid. Who are you? Are you more powerful than God? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I also want to know. Do this, is this because we're going to look at one in. Um, you do it for me, if you would, Craig. Ephesians one thirteen and fourteen, and then um, Heinz, would you look up Hebrews? Chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. I want to put those two together real quick. Let's do that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Sealed with that. That is a strong, strong word that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if you, if in fact you come into faith, he gives you his spirit and that spirit is your seal until the day of redemption. That doesn't sound to me like you can lose that. That is something that God does. Now here's the kicker. Have you really entered? Well, only God knows this. So let's look what Heinz has to say in chapter six of, or chapter four rather of Hebrews. Yes, I think, yeah, it's that passage that talks about him knowing the heart. Wow. So it is God but God who is the one that examines the heart. So when a person makes a public profession of faith, it is God who is the one who by his own word, by his own omniscient knowledge, he penetrates the heart, he divides the, the uh, what is it, marrow and bone. He says that he can even penetrate to understand the difference between your, your what you think and, and the division, how does it say it? The intention of the heart. Thank you. He even knows the intention of your heart and your thoughts. So God who does that at the time of your confession, he penetrates your heart to discern whether or not you have actually made a commitment to him. And for those whom he says, yes, you have made this commitment. He understands that. He knows your heart. He then seals you, according to Ephesians 1, seals you with his spirit until the day of redemption. Cannot ever take it back. You cannot walk away from it. God sealed you. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, Daryl. Yes, that's exactly right. Human
1: with
0: God's and you know what? That's really that's really cool. I like that, the idea of that. So, but, but that is the whole point. And the point is, in, in the understanding of the biblical times of all these writings, the idea of that which is sealed until the day of redemption is an understood and absolute, which is why in chapter 6, you see, concerning this hope, that it is an anchor for your soul, that that you have full assurance. It is steadfast. It's God's word is unchangeable. It is sure. You God will surely bless you. God will surely multiply you. He has promised. It's impossible for God to lie. It is a strong encur- encouragement, and He sealed all of these promises concerning your salvation with an oath. And in making an oath, He puts to rest any arguments about it, any disputes. They're done. They're they're put away. Talk about strong, strong teaching on assurance of salvation. This cannot be what follows a statement that says you can lose it. It it does not fit the context. Yes. That's exactly right. Oh, Heinz. No, you're absolutely, this is exactly what this author came up against. In his situation, he came up with against the problem of them not understanding the teaching about the order of Melchizedek and the, uh, the ancient writings that they should have been familiar with, but they weren't. So he has to make a pause and say, look, you guys are dull of hearing. You haven't left those elementary things. You're supposed to be pressing on to this, that Jesus is better and there were pictures given to you, there were examples given to you, there were there were old testament prophets who s- God spoke through the prophets in those old days. Now he's speaking to us through the sun. You need to move on to what is being spoken to you in the sun. Yeah, overall I get the impression he's saying, you who are thinking about going and back and worshiping in yep. Yes. you believers who are yes. thinking about going back and worshiping for you know for whatever reason persecution. Mm-hmm. persecution Not only that, but it is dangerous that's exactly right you that's exactly right. Some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. Why because they have disobeyed the fundamental principles of god's covenant that he that they are in with God all right, so yes, okay, Margaret verse six. We, we are we are we're just. Yes, I know everybody has had trouble with all of chapter six. <laughs> and starting, you know, it, but what's really interesting is chapter five sets you up. Chapter five says, Look, you guys are dull of hearing. So he's explained to them that there's a problem here. You guys are so immature and you don't know enough about your own faith that I, I am now stuck. I don't even know if I can move forward. So he's going to rebuke them basically. Then he will pick back up with his subject there that he had left off on and finish teaching. And I think that he's doing so then with the understanding that these people are going to buckle down and start learning the things they need to know. And then they can come back to this letter that he's written and follow him later. They may not be able to follow him right now, but he's going to finish teaching them what he wants them to know about how Jesus is better than that old system and why they should not go back to it. You know what? That's me. I am so sorry. That's my phone. I kept hearing it but I thought what Okay, that's I'm so sorry. Somebody wants me, huh? Oh. I kept thinking, whose phone is going off? How rude. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right. Actually, I was just ignoring it because I do that so well. All right. (laughs) Um, Okay. So now this is really good. We've already come a long way. Now what I want to do, we've got got an understanding then this is all about assurance of salvation. I'm going to write this on here. Assurance of salvation and it is taught in chapter 6 starting in verse 9 going all the way to 20 9 to 20 okay so does that does that also begin to help you right away with coming to some interpretation and kind of settling does your heart feel good about that do you feel at rest you may not still fully understand everything that's being said in there right but you now know what it doesn't say isn't that awesome That's a big step forward. Sometimes that's the way the progression of Bible study goes. For me, sometimes I get to at least a certain point and I say, well, I know what it doesn't mean, but I'm not sure I understand what it does mean. And sometimes I have to work on it and chew it over for sometimes years. It takes me a long time sometimes. God has to take me to this passage and to this passage and to this passage and teach me more. Then one day when I go back to that, I go, oh, why didn't I see that before? It's so clear, right? So th- I think that's kind of what this author is going to be doing with them. He's taught them some basics. He's hit a pause because he sees that they're, that they're dull of hearing, and then he's going to, to basically exhort them, because that's his purpose for writing is to exhort them, not to say too bad you can't, you can't ever get there. You're lost forever. He's not saying that. He's saying, but he is warning them, isn't he? He's warning them about the fact that they are dull of hearing. Okay, Margaret, your question. Mm-hmm. I am so glad. <laughs> okay, so now what we want to do is we want to look at the verses 4 to 6 at this point. Um, so 6, 4 to 6 is a passage then that is distinct. Now, Kay did do a really good thing for us in our homework this week. She asked you guys to look at the pronouns. Did you guys do that? Did you notice how the pronouns change? That you start out in verses 1 through 3, and who do you see there? The we and us statements, right? And then where does the we and us pick back up? Verse 9, that's right, verse nine. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The we, the you, the us comes back again, right? Which means in between in verse four to eight, there's another kind of pronoun that's used. And who is it? They and those, right? Very interesting. It Came to my mind on my way in. You're going to love this again. Do you, how many of you ever saw the the Happiest Millionaire? Do you remember that movie with? Um, I can't remember the, the guy. Anyway, Happiest Millionaire. It's an old Walt Disney, ancient, a long, long time ago. And there are two female patriarchal leaders of these, of these very wealthy families, one from one city, one from another, and they come coming together because their kids are going to get married, right? And there's this little uh, tit-for-tat going on between these two pa- uh, Do you call it, matriarchals, the matriarchs of the family. So both of these matriarchs are tit-for-tat, and they're singing a song. And in the song, they're saying... There are those. There are those who do this and there are those who do that, but we right? And so it's there are those. (laughs) That's the whole if you get a chance to see the the happiest millionaire. It's so it's so cute. It's an adorable movie. But I thought of that when I was coming in this morning, because that's how I am. I think Walt Disney. I can't help it. (laughs) Because I watch Walt Disney all the time. So in verses four to eight, there are those. Now, did, what does that tell you about the passage when he makes the switch from us and we to those and they? He's not necessarily talking about this. So when he speaks about there are those, have you ever had a conversation where you said, well, everyone, blah, 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 or others do this, or someone else thinks this way or that way. There are those who do this. Well, you know, they always do this. Well, who is the they? It's somebody else, but it's hypothetical. Did you notice it's hypothetical. It's like there are those, and he presents something hypothetical. He never names anyone specific, and he for sure does not go to them and say, you do this. He said there are those, and if they do this, this is what's going to happen, right? So in 4 to 6, is hypothetical. And it's they and those. Those who do such and such, Right? in one to three and then um actually that's all the way to eight because you can you can include the well no let's not do that let's let's do it the way I said let's go four to six okay one and three and then in nine to twenty is we, us, and specifically you. Correct? Okay. That, to me, is a real uh, important grammatical observation for understanding what is going on here in those few verses in between. Now, on top of the hypothetical that's going on here in verses 4 to 6, what do we have going on in 7 and 8? What other grammatical change have we got going on? There's imagery given, right? So that's in 7 and 8, we have imagery. Now, we've talked about this before, but I just want to say it again to bring it to your mind. Whenever imagery is used, what is its function or purpose? It's something to make clear of the other stuff. It's just like what we've had already so far in this book where he keeps making quotes from the Old Testament, and the purpose of the quote is to enhance all what he has said before and those things which he will follow it with. So he makes a quote to make a point, right? So again, here we have in verses 7 and 8 an imagery statement that makes a point. Now, in imagery, you cannot make direct, um, draw total conclusion. What you're looking for is an overall point, one single point. It's an awful lot like a parable. In a parable, the reason for a parable is to teach a point, specific point. So you can't take every quality of a parable and and make an application to every point of it, right? What you're looking for when you're looking at a parable is what is the major message that's being said here, because this parable is being given to teach a point. Okay, same thing with imagery here. In this point, he's using an imagery much like a parable is used, and he's doing it to make a point. Okay, so that's an important thing to know. So we have in these verses that, fall, that are sandwiched in between what at the beginning of 1 to 3 with, within 9 to 20, we have a hypothetical, they and them, and we have an imagery that's given to give an example. It makes a point. And in this case, what is the point? Okay, so it either, well, okay, it's ground that drinks in the rain, so they both did drink in the rain, but what was the result of drinking in the rain? One gave useful visitation and one did what? Gave thorns and thistles. And now, who is he speaking to again, the audience of these of this particular imagery? The Jews? And how, what do they know about uh, growing and farming and A lot would this be a super familiar kind of imagery to give to them they would be like going I get it totally if they were growing crops on their land and they had sown seeds and that particular land all it did was grow up briars and thistles and thorns what would that farmer do to that land to correct the problem he would burn it off and so what is the point then about this imagery statement Okay. What a man said. So, okay, maybe, that's a good quote. But, but yeah. There you go. Right. Right. Okay. So he is really saying to them that that ground, when it receives rain, now where does the rain come from? in this imagery, obviously, from heaven, from God. And so God is raining on ground. Same rain, same God, same ground, but in the ground is production. And the productions are very different. In one, the person receives what? If it's good stuff that's grown, good vegetation, a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles... Cur- it's close to being cursed and it will be burned, right? Because they understand that bad land has to be burned up in order to make it good again. So, they, it, so all the, what is the lesson here then that's being taught? Is it, be, is it teaching that someone is going to be burned or is it teaching something else? I mean, what is it teaching? I, you're getting close. I think, you are, I think you're approaching it. You're getting there close. Remember, you, you don't want to make complete analogies to one group or another group, but the, the, the message is a bigger one than that, I think, Margaret. So pull back just a little bit further. The fact is then that God reigns on the ground. Some of the ground produces vegetation, and if it does, if it's useful vegetation, then God blesses it. But if it's ground that produces thorns and thistles, then what does he do? He burns it. He burns it. So the, uh, the concept of burning things up then would be the idea of judgment, correct? So what is the big message here, the big picture message? That God is going to do what to those who don't produce what they're supposed to? There will be punishment or discipline of some kind, right? It's not necessarily speaking of a cursing unto death although it could be, I mean, you could take it to, because there, are there scriptures that teach us that there are Christians who can sin as sin unto death? There is. There is absolutely, I've got tons of them listed for you if you are interested, because um, I, well, I did. I, I gave myself a whole list of one, two, three, four, five, six. I have six demonstrations in scripture where true Christians are turned over for, for the, he says, um, for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment, in the day of the Lord, rather. So there are plenty of scriptures. Can anybody else think of a time when a true believer was put on their deathbed or was going to be put to death because of, of disobedience and because their lives were producing thorns and thistles? Moses is a great one. Do you guys remember when we did covenant, where we were te- being taught about the seriousness of covenant? What did we learn about that serious, the serious consequences of someone who breaks covenant with God? They can die. In the case of Moses, did he die? No, but he came this close his wife finally obviously now that's an interesting story because in his case obviously his wife had some disagreements about the idea of circumcising his son and but moses listened to the wife rather than being the leader that he was supposed to be and so god held him accountable and then when she repented god relented right okay A in the yep there you go, Ananias and Sapphira. They had lied to the church and consequently to God himself, and then what did God do to them? Boom, killed them, right. So, you know, we, we see that's a very clear situation where God saw these believers acting in an unholy manner, and boom, he kills them. Okay, and he does so because then the end result is what happens with the church after that? They feared God. <laughs> that is exactly what God wanted. Can you imagine in this scenario here where these people, if they're trying to go back to the old system, how is, what does he say in here about a person who does that in verse 6? They're going to be crucifying Christ all over again, right, and putting him to what? Public shame. Now, in the Old Testament, when Israel was living on their land and putting God to public shame, through all their various kinds of behaviors, what did God do? He did. He sent, he sent fire to burn up the soil. He cleared them off the land, and he burnt the whole thing. Burnt it to the ground and started all over, didn't he? He did so not to cast them into hell, but to do what? To teach them, to discipline them, to try to bring them back into right relationship, to re- bring them into Repentance. Yes, others, so. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is not a picture of being sent to hell. This is a picture of judgment. That's all it was, discipline. So I don't know about you guys, but I wrote on my section right here, four to eight, discipline. To, under, to give myself an understanding that what's being spoken of here is not someone being cast into hell, but that God is going to discipline someone if they bring shame onto the name of Jesus Christ. Does that put the fear of God in any of you? As Ananias and Sapphira were judged by God, and the result was the church feared the Lord, when you think about people like these who are in danger of turning back, in their case, to a a sin which is so grievous that it's going to put Jesus to public shame, God is saying, be careful. This is what he's telling us through this author, author. God could judge you. Yes?
1: The fact that they go back to the synagogue, they're actually aligning themselves with the
0: people who crucified Christ. That's right.
1: So they're basically saying that, hey, I'm, you know, they may not be thinking this in their mind, but they're saying to
0: everybody else, I'm agreeing with these people. to do that. Absolutely. So How does this apply to you and I today then? Okay, obviously you and I are not going back to a Jewish temple, right? So we can't commit that sin. But is there anything in equivalent that we might do that would put us into the same scenario, the same kind of sin? Okay. How about just walking away and going back, not even going to church? With those hypocrites? I'm not going to go there anymore. Yeah, okay, that's a real good example. Corinthians covers a lot of these issues. Um, I think there was one in, um, I'm not sure if I wrote it down. Yes, how about, let's go in there. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13 is another. This is a scenario that we can better relate to that would be equivalent to what the Jews were doing in their time. Their sin was so grievous that it would put Jesus Christ to public shame because of their going back and basically saying either Christ isn't who he said he was or Christ's work was not sufficient. Whichever message it was sending, it would put him to public shame and would undermine the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ who came and that he is the better than covenant than what they had under this old law. If they go back to the law, then they're saying Jesus isn't better. Right? And and their testimony, the confident assurance that they're going to have by holding fast to their hope, is not going to hold true. Or they're saying that, hey, I don't trust Jesus that
1: he's going to get me through this persecution and and the stuff I'm going through in life right now. And we do that subtly in different ways by worrying or something. I'm not really trusting God to see me through
0: this. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now to take to take this scenario and bring it to a Gentile world, let's move into Corinthians and see a situation there. Now it's pretty overt, but you can go, go into to subtle nuances of sin and they still apply. This one is so overt you can't miss it. Somebody read um one to thirteen of first Corinthians five. Who wants to do that for us? Somebody? Yes. Yeah, so they they didn't mourn over that kind of behavior. Instead, they just, and they didn't remove him, so they didn't discipline them. So go on. For
2: I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him. who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord.
0: Oops. Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, your bo- Lord Jesus, your boasting is not good. Do you do you not know that a little leaven
0: leavens the whole lump of dough? Okay, now stop right there for a second. Do you not know that leaven leavens the whole clump, the whole piece of dough? How does that relate to what's going on here? Okay, the point is he's, he's seeing them begin to show and demonstrate behavior which might permeate then into the rest of the household of that faith, right? Those who are making a claim of Jesus Christ. But if they go back, that could actually gravitate and grow like yeast does. Okay, keep going. Where am I going to? Where? To 13.
2: with idolaters or when you were when you would have to go out of the world but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any
0: so-called brother okay hold on did you catch that any so-called brother a person who claims to be in faith but is living in these kinds of sin in this case very overt sin but when people claim to be a Christian yet live in sin what keep going
2: Judging outsiders, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God's judges removes the wicked man from
0: among yourselves. Whoa, this is a beautiful passage. If I were you, I would write this cross-reference right in next to Hebrews chapter six, verses four to six, and and give yourself a New Testament. Uh, gentile example of this kind of behavior and why it's so grievous it can permeate it can spread and and he's saying who are you that you say that you have this faith in Jesus and yet you're living like the world the case of the the Jews back to our context who are you to say that you have put your faith in the coming of the Christ but now you're reverting back to those elementary things that taught about his coming You're going back to the old system instead of moving into the new. And what is that going to do to the masses of Christians in there, potentially? It's like yeast that gets into the dough. It permeates the whole dough. And it can defile many. It can cause many to stumble. So are you seeing kind of a relationship? It's pretty, sometimes a book like Hebrews is tough for us to Make personal application because we're not Jewish and we don't have a temple, and we're never going to go back and commit that specific crime. But there are New Testament writings, other books, particularly Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in particular, but others also, that show us where we Gentiles also can fall back into our old way. We fall back into our old sin. And yet we make a claim to be in Christ. And this warning that's given here in verses 7 and 8 through imagery is, watch out. If if God is raining on you, and if you're producing thorns and thistles, judgment can come. God will come in, and he will consume with his holy fire all the dross, all the, the wheats and thorns and thistles. Now, does that mean death? Maybe, maybe, you could die, some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. First Corinthians eleven same book as this passage is given in first Corinthians eleven he says he says, "Don't come to the Lord's Supper and defile it, don't come and 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 malign God's holy name, don't." Make Jesus be a reproach among the nations, as as Ezekiel taught. And in this case, he's saying, um, um, don't crucify to yourselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Same thing. Okay? Those are some challenging words. Right, that's exactly right. And if someone is looking at my life and seeing me live in an, in some way that is sinful enough that Jesus is actually put to shame, then it's really hard for them to put their faith and trust in anyone who claims to be a Christian. This is one of the stumbling blocks that people who are not yet in faith speak about often. Well, if that's the kind of a Christian, Christians are, if that's the way it's going to be, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Susan. Talk anymore about the it is impossible to begin to Um All right, let's see if I can not sure if I can well, fully make what's impossible with people sometimes is not impossible with God. And God can make it possible through his burning fire. Absolutely. This is really interesting because I also think that word if God permits ties into links into that. I think you can you can circle if God permits and bring it and bring it down to that it's impossible to renew them again and join or merge those two thoughts together because why would God not permit these believers to move on? Not the hypothetical ones, but the true believers. What would prevent those who up here, that he's saying, he actually concludes in 9, but we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. So he's saying about verses 4 to 8, I don't believe that's true about you. I don't believe that's going to be true about you. But he has set up at the close of 3, he says, you need to leave those elementary things that you have been staying in where you are dull and infants, right? And if God permits, we will do so. When would God not permit? Good question. When would God not permit someone to move on? In the illustration given to us, in the hypothetical, what have these people done that makes it impossible for them, for God to permit it? Okay. Have any of us committed something that puts Jesus to shame, and yet we're still standing and living and breathing? Absolutely. So, you're getting close, okay? Good point, but let's, okay, let's try another one. What about that word, have fallen away? What is the inference in that statement there, in that hypothetical? That they defected to the point that they were not going to undefect, right? That's what really is being stated in the hypothetical. Is their falling away is the kind of falling away where there will not be a repentance from that falling away, right? And therefore, and so it actually shows a willful defiance against allowing the Holy Spirit to turn them. Now, in the case of this audience, think about how this is unfolding here. He is speaking to them. They are those hypotheticals almost in that they, have, they are very close to putting Jesus to open shame. They haven't quite approached it, but the issue is they are dancing between two sides of that fence. And this author is saying, and you are so dull because you should have matured by now and you haven't. But is he saying you can't? No, he's not, because what is his exhortation? He gives them an exhortation. He says in 5.11, his exhortation is that they do what? He wants them to repent, right? Repent and do what? Repent from what? Well, it's 5.11 through 14, I'm sorry, and it actually goes all the way through. But what is he wanting them to repent from in 5.11 to 14? Their dull heart, Okay, repent from your dull heart. And from infancy, right? He yeah. also encourages convinced of better things. That's what I said, exactly. So, what we know is this they are close to doing some of these things that are in the hypothetical. But he he concludes it in in um, six nine. But of you. Now he switches back to the you. He says, um, "I am convinced, or we are convinced, of better things." Right. So the implication there is that they will repent. Correct that there's hope for them to yet repent. So concerning the ones in the hypothetical then, the idea that they have fallen away and they, and they cannot be restored again tells you what about their kind of falling away? Will they, Yeah, their falling away is the kind of falling away where they will not be disciplined. They will not allow the Lord to bring them back around to a repentance. They have dug their heels in so strong. This falling away has fixed them in this, this um, deliberate disobedience that will not even listen to the, the exhortation or the disciplines like this author is giving to them. So he's really warning them. He says, Don't, in other words, don't not listen to me. I'm warning you. I am believing better things of you, but if you're like these, it's impossible and guess what's going to happen well, discipline is going to fall on you that's absolutely true right back, you're being, you're right yeah, he's already addressed the fact that he's not even sure if some of them really are or not, because he says you only are if you're holding fast. And so if you're not holding fast, that means you, you probably aren't. Although he's not making a definitive judgment on them, he's just saying, look, the evidence is showing that you aren't because you're not living it. Yes. Yes. There is no sacrifice for them. That's what this is saying. Right. There is nothing for you if you turn to Christianity and go back. Yeah, what is there? And you it's impossible. Yes. Jesus, yes. That's right. And if you're making a claim that Jesus is the Christ and he came and he is the once for all sacrifice, then what is there for you? Exactly. What can you go back to? There is no sacrifice for you. Sacrifice. Right? You can't re-sacrifice Christ. No. For That's right. No- right. And so the impo- the impossible statement is really just saying, look, it's it's all impossible. The whole thing is so messed up that it's just an impossibility and it's and it can't happen. One of the pastors I listen to says you can't have a do-over. You don't get to start, He's, he talked about his students coming into his class and they're moving along at a certain pace and they kind of get stuck in a rut and they've fallen by the wayside because they're not getting their homework done and they're not doing really well. Well, then he says, he says, you can't come to me then in the middle of the, of the semester and say to me, can I, can I have a do-over, can I start all over? No, there is no do-over, we're halfway through, pick up from right where you're at. And move forward. That's what he says. He's telling these people to do. There is no do-over. Don't go back to the old. You can't re-crucify him. You can't get re-baptized. You can't get re—you um, know—if you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is once for all. You are sealed until the day of redemption. You need to repent and just move on. But you, it's impossible to do it all over again. It can't happen. Well. Well okay but that's not because and the answer to that would be it's addressed in verses 4 to 5 what does it say about them they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. So, yes, they, these, he is speaking to those who are actually truly saved. And he's saying about those who are truly saved, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse, how many of you have ever heard of, seen a person who claims to be in faith and you're trusting they really are, and you have gone to them about a subject and said, this is disobedience. This is against God's principles. If you do not listen to me, God is going to judge. You are going to be in big trouble with your father in heaven. Don't make me come down there, right? Have you ever heard that when your daddy was upstairs? Well, you're upstairs and daddy will say, don't make me come up there. Well, in our case, it's daddy coming down. This is a warning saying you must listen to the instruction and the rebuke and the exhortations that I am giving to you you cannot you cannot put him to a public shame and not expect him to discipline. Because what we do absolutely know is this is not talking about a Christian losing salvation. And another thing we absolutely know is it is talking about a Christian. So this is a Christian who's being warned about discipline. That if you continue in behavior after you've been given exhortation and training and teaching, that's a person who God will not permit to go forward. He's going to discipline Some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. And I don't know which one he'll do to you, but he'll do one of those. If you won't listen to the exhortation and the training, the instruction of people in your life who God has given to you, your your family, your sisters and brothers in Christ, your pastor, whoever comes to you and rebukes you about your sin, if you have a sin that's so grievous that it's going to bring shame upon Jesus' name, and you absolutely dig in your heels... Well, that's the one God won't permit to move on and just pick up and keep going. He's going to discipline. Okay? Yes.
1: Preached,
0: That's right. I think we've also got a message here that if you fall away in this way,
1: you believers, you no longer are going to be part of the household of priests that bring the message
0: of God to the people. You're going to be disqualified, as Paul said. Well, the disqualification there was for the rewards of, of doing it's, the works of God. So. You're, you So reward, and although the, quite honestly, even though what you're saying is true, Craig, it's not the subject matter that's here. There's another teaching in other books that talks about the loss of reward for failure in the, the ministry work. I, I'm, what I'm saying here is this is discipline for them doing something which so profanes God's holy name in the public that discipline must come upon them. And this author is saying to them, listen to my discipline, listen to my word of exhortation, heed it. He says this in 1322. His author's purpose is, he says it's a word of exhortation, right? And he tells them, heed it. I'm going to write that down. So it's a word of exhortation, and he says, he it." And he says, "I want you to repent from a dull heart and from infancy and sluggishness, and I want you to move on to maturity." In six one, and he sa- then he follows it up in his exhortation. I expect this of you, right? His expectation is that they will do so. So, and that's in uh, 6, um, 9, okay? And then he, he has set up before, if God permits. I am going to say, go back to chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, where God is the one that examines the heart. He's already laid that down as a truth principle to us that says God is going to examine your heart. He knows whether you are going to repent and move on because of this word of exhortation. You're going to heed it. You're going to hear it, hear my voice, you're going to be obedient, you're not going to fall as some of those did in the wilderness. Now, not all those who fell in the wilderness were unbelievers. Some of them were actually believers, but they were in in willful defiance of God's word. That's what this is talking about. It's impossible to bring them back because they're in willful defiance. They have decided, I am not going to hear it. There are some people who do that. You talk to them about a specific sin, and they do not want to hear what you have to say about it. It's a willful defiance. Now, if that sin begins to be a problem in that it causes Jesus' reputation and Jesus' message to be defiled or defamed, if it's a form of blasphemy, so to speak, then Jesus, God, he is going to rebuke, he's going to discipline. And that's the picture of the imagery that's given to us in those two verses. It's an imagery that says God is reigning on his ground. You all are his ground, all of you. Every one of you are believers who have received the Holy Spirit. He says, but those of you who produce thorns and thistles, be careful, judgment can come. Is it making pretty good sense at this point? Okay. Okay. Uh, the impossibility of going back is, I think it's determined by the heart of the individual. If their falling away is such of a nature that they are willfully defiant to hear any discipline from anyone, then God is going to step in and he will discipline. And he, knowing the heart, knows whether to make you sick, weak, or sick, or to make you fall asleep he will determine that. There are plenty of examples in scripture where God has done that, even taken life. But I can tell you this, he prefers to discipline you gently. He prefers to maybe make you weak first. If that doesn't work, maybe to make you sick. And if that doesn't work, then he will bring you home. Some people have a sin that leads them unto death. Yes. Are they ones who have never been saved or fallen away in this sense? Yes, and yes, maybe and maybe, and <laughs> we don't know, and God only knows. God only knows. But, uh, but, they were really saved. well, you know what? I do think that this author has actually already addressed that very problem back in chapter three, when he said, when he talks about those, you are God's house if, and he makes those two statements in chapter three, verse six and fourteen. And he says, basically examine your own heart, because there's some of you I don't even know if you've entered into the rest of God or not. Right? And so he actually says, I'm not sure there. And why does he say that? It's the same reason you're saying what you're the scenario you just gave, because you're not sure. You're looking at their life and you're hearing the things come out of their mouth and you're not sure. Right? You don't know, but God knows. Now, either they're not saved at all and they never were saved or they're a Christian living in habitual sin and where is the judgment, my guess would be they never were saved. That would be my biggest, strongest place to go. However, it could be that they're they're saved, and if that's so, and they're denying Jesus Christ, um, I think there's plenty of scriptures that say that those who are truly his never will deny him in that way. But they can deny him by bad behavior, and in that case, that's when discipline comes as opposed to, to um, well, it's discipline, you know, because a person who truly knows God must make those confessions that Jesus is the Christ. And I think the, the, the core message of this particular book are Jews who have said they've come into faith, that they have put their faith on Jesus as the Christ, but they're not maturing. And now they're waning and trying to go back to the old system of those elementary teachings about the Christ, and this is causing Jesus to be put to public shame for those who will do this. And so this author is now warning them and saying, look, if, because you're truly his, you have been, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Watch out, because if the rain falls on you and you produce thorns and thistles, God's judgment will come. You are you are putting yourself. You are taking your life in your own hands by being that defiant against the Lord. And those who are so defiant, God will judge. If their heart will not turn, it's beyond that place. And there are some I, in the New Testament in Romans chapter one. It talks about those that God eventually just gives over to the the to a reprobate mind and to do things which they are not ought to. And, and though, in the case of that one, it's people who have rejected. Christianity altogether is still rejecting that God is. But you can make that same kind of application where God can harden that heart um, and say, fine, then you're done. We're, we're, we're taking you home. And it's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 5. He, he says, fine, I'm going to turn you over uh, to Satan for the destruction of your flesh so that your spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Specifically, but the whole passage is 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 3:13 to 15 talks about a Christian losing reward for um, uh, losing reward because of unfaithfulness in the way that they serve God. It's a little different subject, but there's a point in it. I do think it's good. It says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Why? Because a Christian cannot lose their salvation no matter what they do in their works or not do in their works. You can, you can, well, I believe if you are a Christian, you will do good works. I believe that if you're a Christian, this is why he follows this up. I'm convinced of you of better things, things which accompany salvation. He's saying, I'm expecting to see in you An evidence that there truly is salvation in you, and repentance is one of those. And if a Christian comes to you, a brother of this stature who comes to them and says to them, you need to straighten up or God's going to judge, he's saying, I'm convinced you're going to listen. I'm convinced of it. And so here in 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says judgment for believers does not affect salvation, but it does affect their rewards. And could possibly be loss of life for falling away. It is possible. Falling away in the manner that these people have done, we can do also. Just because we don't have a temple doesn't mean we can't fall away in this manner. Our sin would not be the sin of going back to the temple work. It would be the sin of going back to our old life, our old way, being self-independent instead of relying on God, being independent and away from the household of faith in a way which defiles God or, or profanes his name or shames him. And if we do that, watch out. So this is really just a stern, stern warning. These verses in here are hypothetical and imagery. It's the they and those. It's the, the few who are. But he's saying about them, I believe that, I'm convinced you are going to listen to this message. And he gives them this exhortation. He says, Repent from your dull heart, from your infancy and sluggishness, and move on to maturity. I am expecting that you will do that if God permits. And when, when would God not permit? If your heart is so hardened that you won't listen. He might take your life. He might discipline you in some other fashion. Mhm. they may not be exactly. That's right. That's right. This really this passage really opens up so many potential subjects out there for us to consider in the in the the process of walking the Christian life, the idea of rewards the idea or loss of rewards and who is and who isn't and discernment. And, I mean, there's all kinds of subjects that come on. Let's go back now and do an outline then. Now that we've kind of settled with what we think is going on in these verses, let's do an outline for chapter 6 of Hebrews so that you see the, the paragraph divisions here. So you see in verses 1 to 3 is an exhortation for them to do what? He exhorts them to do what in verses 1 to 3? To press on to maturity, right? Because why? Well, the overall message here is that Jesus is better. What is he better than? Well, in, verse, in chapter 6, though. It's not about the angels in 6. It's about the what? Those elementary teachings about the Christ. So it's, um, let's put it up here, Jesus... Is better than the elementary teachings about him. Right? The real thing is better than the picture, right? That's your major theme. So in one to three, he says, so move on to maturity. Now we hit those verses where we get the imagery and such going on. So I'm going to take 4 to 6, where we we see then he talks about um, those who have been enlightened. And what is it that they are being warned concerning? That's right, don't fall away, right? And he uses the hypothetical, those who fall away. And what do they do if they do that? What's the result? Well, they that's the ne- that's the next uh, paragraph division. Let's stay in the. Let's look at four to six. If they fall away, what are they doing to Christ? They're crucifying him again and doing what? Putting him to what? Putting him to open shame. Okay, so that's four to six. Now, seven and eight. Then, again, those, hypothetical, or imagery in this case, those who do fall away, what happens? They, they, they can be judged or can be disciplined. He says in this, he considers them to be, he, he gives an imagery of that they are like uh, worthless ground correct? The worthless, doesn't it say that? Worthless? Yeah. He says uh, it yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless. So they're compared to being worthless. Um, Those who fall away are, and I put the word like in there because that's the imagery statement, like, worthless, ground. And there's a danger of being judged, right? Now we're back to, here he says you you move on to maturity. Now we're back to the you again in 9 to 12. What does he say to them? Yeah, he's basically saying, I want you, uh, I consider that, or I, I am convinced that uh, of you, that there are going to be things that accompany salvation, right? So in that, then what is he encouraging them to do in verse 11? To show something. Show diligence. So you show diligence um, or be diligent. I'm just going to put it that way. Be diligent and show things that accompany uh, salvation. Okay, that's in 9 to 12. Now, 13 uh, to 15, he gives him another exhortation, and and it's a reference about this subject of Abraham. Since God is surely going to bless you and surely going to multiply you, Abraham, and by uh, consequence, the rest of us who are in the faith of Abraham, what does he want us to, to do that Abraham did? but it doesn't say faith in there. It says to be, what does he say in verse 15? Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So he's exhorting them to do what? To be patient, right? Be patient because God's promises are sure. God said, surely I will. Be patient. So you be diligent. You be patient. Because God's promises are, are sure. So that's the confidence he's giving us in there. And now in 16 to 20, he tells them you do what? What is going on in 16 to 20? Major subject there. The oath and the promises, right? And he tells you those are called uh, your hope. So what are you supposed to do concerning your hope? Take hold of it. That's right. You take hold of the hope that's set before you or before us. All right, so that gives you an outline, flow of thought. Jesus is better than the elementary teachings about him. Now, we didn't get a chance today to talk about those elementary teachings and exactly what those are making reference to. Maybe we'll get a chance to dabble in it a little bit uh, next week um, because there's really a nice little list of some things that are foundational, um, but, but the cl- clue there is it's about Christ. It's the things that were about him. And if you look at the flow of thought here, we see before, he's better than things that were before because he is the reality. In chapter 6, same thing, Jesus is better than those elementary teachings that were about him, right? And he says, so you move on to maturity. Those who fall away are putting him to open shame, and those who fall away are like worthless ground. You be diligent and show things that accompany salvation. You be patient because God's promises are sure. You, in 16 to 20, you take hold of the hope that is set before us. Nice outline, huh? You like it? Does is, is anybody have any outstanding specific question that we can address very quickly? Anything?